Hi, this is Ben Lowell of Back to the Bible Canada. During the program today, we continue our series, Life Lessons from David, the Man Who Would Be King. This message is called Hanging On When Everything Crumbles. So let's listen now to Dr. Neufeld and turn in our text to 1 Samuel chapter 21 to 23. I'd like to quote from a poem that I've known for many years. The author is unknown, and here's what it says. When God wants to drill a man and thrill a man and skill a man, when God wants to mold a man to play the noblest part, when he yearns with all his heart to create so great and bold a man that all the world should be amazed, watch his methods, watch his ways, how he ruthlessly perfects what he royally elects, how he hammers and hurts him, and with mighty blows converts him into trial shapes of clay, which only God understands, while his tortured heart is crying and he lifts beseeching hands, how he bends but never breaks when his good he undertakes, how he uses whom he chooses and with every purpose fuses him, with mighty acts induces him to try his splendor out. God knows what he's about. You know, some of us have wondered why it is that those who are used by God in mighty ways are so often deeply wounded, so much so that their wounds play an integral part in who they are. I think the answer is the same reason why Jacob, on the night before he was to encounter his brother Esau, not knowing whether Esau was coming to bless him or to kill him, spent the night before that encounter wrestling with a heavenly being who put out the socket of Jacob's hip so that Jacob went limping, unable to escape, as he was about to face the greatest crisis of his life, wounded by God. See, that's how it was with David. Before God would put him into a palace and proclaim him king and shepherd over Israel, God would expose David's weaknesses and bring him to the place where he would learn to rely on God. The worst thing that can happen is to have a leader who does not know how to trust God in moments of crisis, and therefore God brings leaders and those who influence others into moments of chaos. This is deliberate. The first test David faced was the test with Goliath. There he passes with flying colors as he exercises a faith not seen by anyone else in Israel. But as matters went along, things got a bit complicated. Already on four, perhaps even five occasions, King Saul had tried to kill him, and now David is running for his life. And as we will see, this was arranged by the hand of God. And as we will also see, David didn't necessarily pass all these tests of faith with flying colors. Unlike what David said earlier, the Lord delivered me from the paw of the lion and the bear. He delivered me from the Philistine giant, and whoever rises up against me now, God will deliver me here as well. Well, that would have been nice. Instead, that old David seems to be leaving, and in his place is a David who seems less than certain. Let's follow these five incidences in which David's weaknesses are exposed and in which we will slowly see a kind of faith developing in him that will prepare him for his throne. And as we do, let's also notice the forces in our lives in which God is preparing us for lives of significance. The first incident is a failure to see a crisis in terms of God's providence. David has left Samuel at Ramah and left Jonathan with a covenant of friendship, and for the first time in his life, he's running for his life. We read about these events in 1 Samuel 21. Let's read verses 1 to 3. 
Then David came to Nob to Ahimelech the priest, and Ahimelech came to meet David trembling and said to him, Why are you alone and no one with you? And David said to Ahimelech the priest, The king has charged me with a matter and said to me, Let no one know anything about the matter about which I send you and with which I have charged you. I have made an appointment with the young men for such and such a place. Now then, what do you have on hand? Give me five loaves of bread or whatever is here. Now, Nob was a city located on the top of Mount Scopus. Today, this is within the municipal boundaries of the city of Jerusalem and offers one of the best views of the city. But in David's time, it was just outside of Jerusalem. It was a small settlement then, and it housed one of the shrines of the priests. David needs to stop here because he knows the priest in charge, a man named Ahimelech. It's possible that Ahimelech heard of something of what happened at Ramah, in which the prophets of the Lord were endangered by Saul, and he wants to know why David is alone. Is there a fallout between him and Saul? A couple of things. Now, technically, David is not alone. We know that his men are somewhere in the region. And we know this because Ahimelech gives David the bread of the presence, and he wants to know if the men of David were ritually clean. The term alone refers to the fact that David is not going with a royal contingent bearing the standard of the king. And sensing that David might be acting without the king's permission, Ahimelech wants David to be honest with him. But David is fearful, and so he lies. And as the story progresses, we're told that one man who watches this interchange is an Edomite man named Doeg. It is possible that he had been a prisoner of war who had then switched sides and became loyal to Saul in order to survive. So he would be a kind of mercenary who fought for money and not for loyalty. And as this story evolves, because David lied to Ahimelech, this was going to cost the priests their lives. Here's what David could have done. He could have told Ahimelech the truth, and they could have silenced or even killed Doeg, for he was Saul's spies, and he was a known evil man. But instead of telling the truth, he put the entire priesthood of Nob at risk, and in the end, David's deception would cost them their lives, as Saul would kill all the priests who helped David. David's panic and his lie would have tragic consequences. And here's the lesson. Unless we learn to be truthful, we cannot trust God fully. Learn to tell the truth and trust in God to protect you. This is always advantageous. But lie while telling yourself it's justified in the present circumstances. This will never bring you to the results that you want. David's first incident while running from Saul is a complete moral failure, one he will deeply grieve later. Now comes the second incident. Once one begins to lie, lies become more frequent and pronounced. David now flees from Nob, and in chapters 21, verse 10, to chapter 22, verse 5, we find David constantly on the move. First, he flees to the Philistines. Let's read 1 Samuel 21, verse 10. And David rose and fled that day from Saul and went to Achish, the king of Gath. Those of you who have followed this series will remember that I said that the Philistines had five royal cities, well-fortified encampments. Gaza and Ashkelon were right on the Mediterranean Sea. Ashdod was slightly inland and more to the north. And then Ekron and Gath were closest to the Israelite territories. David flees to Gath, the city which is closest to his hometown of Bethlehem, so it's natural to flee to the closest fortified city that might protect him from Saul. But in this act of desperation, we know two things. First, that it was the Philistines that David had fought with more than any other people group. 
He is seeking refuge among the enemies of God. And second, Gath was the hometown of Goliath. At one time, David had pronounced victory over Gath in the name of the Lord, and now he was running like a frightened dog to the very city he had once thought defeated in the name of his God. But how does David get into the city? Well, the answer is actually quite easy. In David's time, there was an ancient practice of providing sanctuary for one's adversaries or one's enemies. Since the enemy of my enemy is my friend, under normal conditions, David's presence in that city would have been welcomed, for it could only have been thought of as weakening Saul. And David knew that, and that's why he ran there. But again, he's acting out of fear and not out of faith. And because he's already frightened, David now starts to listen to all the rumors surrounding his arrival there. Achis is hearing from his advisors, isn't this man the man who has slain us by the tens of thousands? And so David pretends to be a madman. He commits vandalism against public property by making marks on doors and gates, probably writing incomprehensible graffiti or symbols related to curses, and then lets saliva run down his beard, which was a sign of desecrating his own manhood. One Bible teacher suggested that in those days, insanity was viewed as an affliction from the gods, and therefore it was thought taboo to harm someone who was insane. Perhaps David knew that and was hoping to escape. At any rate, David's humiliating display convinces everyone, this guy has turned nuts. Leave him alone. No danger here. And in humiliation, David leaves the city and hides in the cave of Adullam, which would be halfway between Gath and Bethlehem. And from there, he builds a fighting force of 400 men who were outcasts from Israelite cultures, criminals, people of unpaid debts, and everyone who had a longstanding grudge against someone. They became his standing army. And from there, he moves east to Moab and urges the king of Moab, the country on the eastern side of the Dead Sea, to take in his family, whom David was now afraid for. And then in the middle of lies and humiliation and panic and fear and unwise decision, something happens to David. The prophet Gad, who would later have a huge role in David's life, found him. And 1 Samuel 22 verse 5 records this. The prophet Gad said to David, Do not remain in the stronghold. Depart and go to the land of Judah. The grammar of that statement is what we might call a categorical prohibition. The wording is as strong as it can be. Thou shalt not stay in the stronghold of the Moabites. If you stay here, you will be breaking the will of God. And in the midst of lies and panic and humiliation, God breaks in and tells him to stop. You are not trusting in God. When we come back, we will see how God turns the corner for David. Today, Dr. Neufeld really helps us to see the humanity of David in his weaknesses and his failure to act in faith. But in the midst of such dire circumstances, the same may well have applied to us. We too often struggle to trust God in those moments where our faith may be stretched to its limits. When we come back, Dr. Neufeld continues the story as we learn what causes David's perspective to change and the principles we can apply from it. I simply can't enter into the new year without expressing the entire ministry team's gratitude and awe for your exceptional display of generosity towards the Back to the Bible Canada year-end campaign. Your gifts, no matter the size, your prayers and encouragement, thank you for your partnership. It's critical in making this ministry possible. 
and it does so much to sustain and supply thousands of people with accessible, trustworthy Bible teaching. We understand that these are difficult financial times for many, which only makes the depth of our gratitude that much more profound. I've said it before, but I cannot express it enough that this ministry would not exist without your partnership. So again, thank you, and Happy New Year. On behalf of the whole team here at Back to the Bible Canada, we pray that this year you will be blessed with a lasting joy and peace that only comes from knowing and placing your trust in our gracious Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. David's encounter with the prophet Gad seems to have marked the beginning of a turning point in his life. For the first time, David moves out of fortresses inhabited by his enemies and moves into a place of vulnerability into the forest of Hereth. We're not completely sure where that is, but we do know that it was somewhere in the Judean desert in a place which once had trees. There he hides, and there he comes to the third incident in this story. David must now face the consequences of his sin. Listen now to chapter 22, verses 7 and 8. And Saul said to his servants who stood about him, Hear now, people of Benjamin, will the son of Jesse give every one of you fields and vineyards? Will he make you all commanders of thousands and commanders of hundreds that all of you have conspired against me? No one discloses to me that my son makes a covenant with the son of Jesse. None of you is sorry for me or discloses to me that my son has stirred up my servants against me. Now notice, if you will, what happens when suspicion and envy and slander take a hold of a person. Pretty soon, they begin to imagine intrigue everywhere. In Saul's way of thinking, David is not his primary enemy. His own son, Jonathan, is. Saul thinks Jonathan is using David as a kind of a hitman to kill him, and then Jonathan can become king in his place. And so Saul is prepared not only to murder David, he's prepared to murder his own son as well. And that's not all. According to Saul, David is lying in wait to kill him and that members of his own command are involved in a vast conspiracy. As bizarre as all of that sounds, think of this the other way around. Imagine trying to convince Saul that this simply was not true. In his own mind, he is convinced himself it is true. And so to deny this is to be in a place of being a part of the conspiracy. See, once this kind of thinking takes hold, every piece of evidence is now marshaled to prove Saul's case. You know, such is always the case of those who seek to accuse others of evil. The person who does these things no longer knows the truth himself. He has believed his own lies. And in this environment, Doeg the mercenary steps forward. And in the end, Doag will murder all the priests at Nob, 85 men, and then turn his wrath on the entire city, killing all men, women, children, infants, and even the animals in that city. Nothing will be left. It's the slaughter of an entire village in Israel. But one man escapes, the priest Ahimelech, the man David lied to, the man who provided for David as he escaped from Saul. And as David hears of what happens, he says, I have occasioned the death of all these people. He does not hide his responsibility in this. You see, even though David would never have slaughtered these people, it was his desperate action that put the entire city at risk. Had he been truthful back then, had he dealt with Doag, this would never have happened. Saul would never have known that David was even there. 
And in this action, David insists on taking accountability for his own panic-stricken activities. Stop and consider that for a moment. William Blakey writes, What a warning this conveys to us. Are you not sometimes tempted to think that sin to you is not a very serious matter? Because you will get forgiveness for it. The atoning work of our Savior will cleanse you of all its guilt. Be it so, he says. But what if your sin has involved others? And if no atoning blood has been sprinkled on them, alas, alas. Sin is like a network, the ramifications of which go out on the right hand and on the left. And when we break God's laws, we cannot tell what the consequences may be to others. See, if David was to be king over Israel, he had to move beyond seeing his sin as personal. Rather, it had ramifications for all of Israel. In the future, his inability to control his family would lead Israel into a civil war. And had Joab not defied the king's orders and David's unwillingness to deal with his own son, that would have allowed a civil war to continue for a long period of time. David had to learn as a leader that his personal private life and the life of the nation he led were inextricably bound together. I don't think he ever fully learned this, but he was starting to. And here God allows David to face his horror. In his panic, he lied to the priest at Nob, and because of his position of prominence the Lord had given him, his sin deeply impacted a great many people. We've been talking about becoming men and women who lead lives of significance. And of course, there is a great honor in being chosen by God to make a major impact on the lives of others. But with that comes the sure knowledge that the greater we are used in the service of our king, the more grave is the consequence of our rebellion, our sin, and our lack of faith. You know, it is for this reason that James 3 verse 1 reminds us, Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach would be judged with greater strictness. And then it adds, For we all stumble in many ways. Indeed, we do. But when a teacher stumbles, or a leader stumbles, or a person of significance in the kingdom stumbles. The fallout is significant. But God is not through with David. He doesn't reject his chosen man, even though he has sinned. Indeed, this is one of the key differences between King Saul and King David. When Saul sinned, he only justified himself and marshaled up arguments of why his sin was either not sin at all or why it was not significant. But David, well, he owned his own sin and became public about his sin. Let me use an obvious example. Early on, Saul tried to have David killed by putting him in a place of danger and and fighting with the Philistines. And, And years later, David would do the same thing to a man named Uriah, the husband of Bathsheba. And in many ways, David's sin seems darker than Saul's. Saul wanted to do away with what he had become convinced of was a rival to his throne. David simply wanted to have sex with another man's wife. But the difference between the two men couldn't be more striking. When Saul's sin is discovered, he only redoubles his efforts to kill David. And he will not come to terms with his sin. And when David's sin is discovered, he writes a psalm and wants all Israel to know the evil that he has done and the kindness of his God. The similarity between the two men as they both sin, the difference is that one completely repents and one hides everything. And so it's not so much the fact that men sin, for they do, and that the greater their prominence, 
the more greatly their sins are felt. It is that men of God repent deeply of the evil they have done. They will not hide in the shadows where their sins lie. And with that, we come to 1 Samuel 23. The chapter begins with a new issue. David, now back in Judah where he belongs, not cowering in the fortresses of pagan kings, hears that the fortified city of Kilah, a productive Israelite city in Judah, is facing warfare against the Philistines. And with the priest Abiathar at his side, David inquires of God, Shall I rescue this city? And God says, Yes. And then after having delivered them, David inquires of God again, and God says, These very people you have rescued. Well, they're going to hand you over to Saul, and they will watch you be killed. And in recognition of this fact, David flees again, and now his 600 fighters, for the 400 have grown to 600, will now be constantly on the run from Saul. And what does David learn? He learns to save God's people at great personal cost. He learns that if he is to become king, he must lay aside his own advantage and serve for the sake of Israel and not for himself. Of course, that's precisely what Jesus did. In Philippians 2, Paul reminds us that Jesus became obedient to the Father to the point of death, even death on a cross. Our great King Jesus put aside his own advantage and became our sin substitute. And Paul, speaking of this, says in Philippians 2, all of us should have the same attitude. See, in order to become Israel's king, David would have to learn this hard lesson. Unlike Jesus, he would learn how deeply his sin affected God's people, and he would have to learn that God wanted him, if he was to become great, to lay aside his own desires for the sake of the kingdom. It is also so with us. If our lives are to matter, if we are to live lives of significance, we will not only have to pick up the cross, we will have to do so in such a way that calls upon us to consider the needs of others before our own. That is the way to significance in God's kingdom. Thanks, John, for today's message. You know, as we think of David, he's a guy that sins a lot. And so we got to ask ourselves the question, why did God choose David? Yeah, David does sin a lot, but I think it may surprise us to notice how often we sin. The reason David's sins are magnified is because of the power that he held and the implication of his sins for an entire nation. But what we also know about David is not only his own sins, but his passion for God is undiminished. This man simply will not let go of God's hand. He simply will not forget to pursue God. So I think there's a great encouragement in David. Imperfect people can still find great favor in God's eyes. Please join us tomorrow as we continue this series looking at Israel's greatest king. Back to the Bible Canada, leading you forward in your walk with Jesus every day. You've heard it said before that God is always with us, but sometimes it can be difficult to grasp what we know to be true. If that has ever been your experience, then you'll want to check out Dr. John's newest book called In All Things, God's Providence. Throughout its 190 pages, Dr. John unravels the mystery behind the doctrine of God's providence in a way we can all understand and appreciate. This book illustrates how God directs and upholds all aspects of our lives. So for this month only, Back to the Bible Canada is offering In All Things for a special feature price of only $5 
or you can download the digital copy for free at backtothebible.ca. Act now because next month, the book will be at its regular price of $17.99 or $3.99 per download. You can order your copy at backtothebible.ca or call us at 1-800-663-2425.